What's up? My name is Josiah Haken, and I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in our country is because we fundamentally do not understand why it happens or what or can be done about it. In this podcast, I'm going to interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have spent years of their lives trying to provide services and resources to their unhoused neighbors, and advocates and theologians who will help us think differently about the issue altogether. You are not going to agree with everyone I interview on this podcast. You may not even agree with me, and that is okay. Let's throw out our assumptions and consider the possibility that maybe there is more to this story than we previously thought. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. Amazing. Oh my goodness. I have the pleasure and the honor of chatting with someone who has had a huge impact on my journey uh, into the streets, uh, helping people who are dealing without uh, without homes. My uh, soon-to-be friend, I hope, Shane Claiborne. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Heck yeah, man. Great to be with you. Uh, I'm grateful for all you're doing. Glad to be a part of the conversation, bro. Well, this just to give you background on what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to, you know, I've been working in the streets with with people who are dealing with homelessness in New York City and New Jersey for about 11 years now. Bless um, you. And I'm trying to, you know, basically give people the chance to kind of rethink um, homelessness and um, and rethink their, you know, what their neighbors are experiencing who don't have a place to stay. Um, and what you may not know is that you actually had a huge impact on my journey. Um, like 15 years ago, I was I was in central Pennsylvania working as a salesman for a kitchen remodeling company. Uh, and somehow I got a hold of the book, uh, Irresistible Revolution. And uh, I remember reading um, the story of uh, the church that, that was going to be torn down. And, uh, and, I, and I remember I was looking back over your book and the, the, even the subtitle, Jesus Was Homeless. Um, that book actually was like was a huge part of my sort of launch into this this world. So just thank you for for the work that you've done and uh, the impact you've had on my life. I just wanted to say that right off the top. It, it, it means a lot to me. And um, I wouldn't be here again. God uses little things and, and people from all over to impact folks and get them out in the streets and get them into the mission that God's calling them to do. So thank you for that. That means so much, man. And I'm, uh, again, I'm so grateful to be a little part of your journey and to know of all the stuff you're up to now. So yeah, thanks for having me a part of the conversation today. So, so what was your, just re- one thing I'm asking a lot of my guests and stuff is what was your first introduction to the reality of homelessness? Like if you look back on your life, like what was, like, was there a time where you look back and you're like, oh, wow, people don't have a place to stay. Um, and is there, was there a first sort of moment that you can think of for yourself that uh, where homelessness came to become a reality rather than a, th- than a theoretical thing? Well, there's a few of those. I grew up in a little bitty town in East Tennessee. Uh, and so I didn't see a lot of people living on the streets. Um, and, and, you know, I really hadn't been in, in a lot of big cities until I went to Philadelphia, uh, where I went to college. And some of my friends in college said, Hey, we, you know, every few nights or so we go downtown to spend some time with folks that are living on the street and take some food and blankets and stuff. And you want to come with us? And I said, yeah. And man, I'll tell you, I guess everything shifted from there. You know, I met some incredible people uh, and, 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 and they, they, you know, they defied any kind of stereotypes. I met people that 
read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, you know, that uh, folks that had gone to Harvard, folks that had been uh, professional football players uh, that got, you know, one, one of whom got addicted to uh, drugs after an, a football injury, you know, and then, and, and so it was just like so many different folks, but many of them had a real deep, genuine faith. In fact, many of them had a more robust faith than I had. I had all the doctrines on paper, but I hadn't been through things that uh, uh, like they had been through that I, I would say are kind of like a refiner's fire. You know, it really tests those that, that faith. And um, a lot of the answers that I had, they didn't work, the theological answers. You know, like if, if your only answer to a 14-year-old girl being sexually abused uh, is God had that happen for a reason, like, uh, it got some like uh, kind of messed up theology, you know, or at least some holes in it. And so I, I really, really had to start to wrestle with some bigger theological questions. Uh, but my faith came to life, uh, hanging out with folks on the street. And, um, and then, you know, you mentioned in 1995 when I was, a, I guess it was a, you know, my second year of undergrad, that's when we heard about the families. Uh, these were mostly mothers and children that were squatting out. They were living, you know, in an abandoned Catholic uh, church building. And that was really eye-opening for me because a lot of the people I had experienced on the streets downtown going every, you know, week or uh, so um, were single folks, a lot of single men that were living under bridges or in the parks. And this was a very different face of homelessness, uh, which was women and children Many of them lived in cars or were kind of couch hopping where they could, and they had come together um, uh, in a really courageous act to refuse to be invisible and to expose the fact that the fastest growing homeless population then and now is women with children. And uh, the average age of a homeless person then, and I just saw a new statistic that's almost identical, is about 10 years old. Uh, that's the average age of, of someone who doesn't have a home. But that's not necessarily who we think of when we think, you know, homeless person or whatever. Um, and yet I think that's that's a, kind of the spectrum of how poverty uh, and homelessness had affected so many different kinds of people, you know. Uh, uh, and, and those became some of my best theologians and friends and teachers and still to this day, the families that organized the church takeover 25 years ago are still really, really doing incredible work. Uh, Sherry Honkola that organized, she was a homeless mom that organized that takeover, was the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, wow. People, have people have taken all kinds of different uh, uh, paths. You know, Liz Theo Harris was a young organizer, student organizer like me, and now she's the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Barber. So um, we're all still doing it, you know, and um, but those those courageous moms really, you know, when you ask where did it begin, that's really what yeah. uh, lit the fire for me. And and you're based out of out of Philly. I mean, I again, I'm based in you know New York City and, and Newark, New Jersey, and Patterson, New Jersey. Um, tell us a little bit about the situation in Philly, and you know what what do you see every day? Um, you know what's what's being done. And, you know, from your perspective, what, what are some things that have, you know, worked when it comes to engaging and helping people who have no place to call home and, and what's not working and, and what's, what's, what's being done poorly? 
Oh, you ask such good questions because you're in the trenches doing all this. And I, I just I'll throw a few things out there and I'd love to hear, you know, your your thoughts, too. But uh, what I see is that some of the best programs are the least funded and the least available. Um, for instance, uh, housing for women and children is almost non-existent. I mean, at, at one point, there were 3000 families waiting on uh uh, on the waiting list for affordable housing in Philadelphia. So programs like Section 8 housing, which is, you know, is kind of a subsidized way to, to, to get a house. Or, I mean, even what we're doing right now is inspired by the work of Millard Fuller and Habitat for Humanity and Fuller Housing. And so we use a model that uh, our, our motto is kind of, we won't build a house for you, but we'll build a house with you together. And yeah, so we, we, we fund it. And, um, Families do sweat equity on it. So they're working on the house. We're teaming them up with contractors and electricians and plumbers, and we're building a house together. And then we, we finance it at uh, no interest on the mortgage, you know, and customize the monthly payment, but it's to build home ownership. So there's things like that that I love and believe in, but they have really very little funding, you know, uh, to, to kind of grow our capacity and scale up some of that. Um, the other thing is that there's programs that it's really hard to run these huge governmental programs well. You know, a lot of the folks that are in the uh, Department of Human Services, like child protection, they have so many caseloads that it's hard to really do that work well. Um, as you know, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa inspired so much of our work, and she said, "We're not called to do great things, but small things with great love." And I think it's really hard for a lot of caseworkers to do small things with great love. And I, I know a lot of them, you know, and one of my, you know, I, th I think it's so important to, to tell the story so that it's not just statistics and stuff, but just one quick story that, that early on kind of cracked a lot of my idea, you know, just broke it open for me was uh, there was a, a, a mother who actually is a grandmother who was caretaking her grandchildren and, there was a little house fire. It didn't ruin the whole house, but it did damage the kitchen. And so they were trying to figure out how to fix that up. And um, and so they had applied for a grant to try to get a little extra funding. They didn't have a lot of savings because they were kind of living, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And the Department of Human Services came in and they took her grandkids away hmm. because they said this house is not... Um, you know, stable and fit enough for the kids to live in without helping her fix it. And so she obviously was devastated. And, and there are times where kids need to be protected and taken away, but this was not one of those. Right. Yeah. And then um, she got a letter from the city after the kids were taken that said, we're sorry, you can't, you don't um, qualify for prioritized funding because we're prioritizing families that have children and grandchildren living in the house with them. So, I mean, that's literally no one of those cases, right, where she can't get her grandkids because she can't she doesn't qualify for this grant and she doesn't qualify for the grant because she doesn't have kids in the house. And, and I begin to see that that's not just the exception, but no there way. are a lot of variations of Miss Betty. That was her name, you know, her story. Yeah. Uh, and so there's things like that, you know, that um, and, and there's a million different, you know, facets of that. Um, and just one other one was a city program that um, I, I thought was a great idea until I kind of was able to get inside of it, which is, check this out, man. Philly has more abandoned houses than homeless folks, right? So we've got over 30 
thousand abandoned houses at the same time that there's a 10-year waiting list for housing, right? And uh, it just doesn't make sense, right? So some folks in the city started to say, well, let's just, you know, like give these houses away, basically. So they had a program called the Dollar House Program. But as they built the the kind of foundation of that, they did a few things that were um, problematic. They made it so difficult for the houses to qualify to be on the giveaway list that they had to be kind of structurally unsound. I mean, some of them, I saw them. The roof had already collapsed on them, right? And so you're, you're giving away the worst houses. And they also made the criteria to qualify stricter than Section 8 requirements. Uh, so you had to be on a very, very limited income. So essentially, we're giving the worst houses to the people with the least income. And that just ne- almost never ends up <laughs> being a situation yeah. where you can fix a house up into a home. So there's yeah. so those ideas. But here's what, what I find is common, common, bro, is that it's when those who are forming the policies and stuff are not as directly in touch with those on the ground that you have some of those things happen, right? So that's why we always need the people who are directly impacted at the table. Maybe not even Absolutely. just at the table, but really helping lead um, the way so that we begin to see some of those blind spots, you know, that that develop. So, you know, that's that's what I would say are just a few snapshots of what we see. I want to just say lastly that um, the opioid crisis has been mm. absolutely devastating, dude. And yeah. um, I mean, Philly, there's, you know, there's a New York Times article on, it's called the Walmart of heroin that shows yep. my, my, my particular neighborhood um, and the impact that that's had. But, you know, I have here on my desk, one of the things that we, um, we did inspired by the, the young people, the children and, and youth in our neighborhood is they kept finding needles everywhere. And so we had a campaign called Need a Little Help where we packaged mm. up those heroin needles. I know not everyone can see this, but um, we put them in bottles and uh, with quotes from our young people and we delivered bottles of heroin needles to our public officials. Um, and we did a press conference, you know, and we, we had the health, you know, the health commissioner and the different council folks and the mayor and, and we delivered those as a plea for help. I mean, need a little help. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, um, but it was also very humanizing and it showed the impact of what this really is. And I think that's what, you know, where Dr. King also inspires me is he says, we have to make injustice uncomfortable mm. so that we have to expose it in a way that makes people uncomfortable so that they cannot be apathetic. You know, they have yeah. to take action. And I think when we delivered those jars of needles that did that for some of our legislators and one of our city council folks told me, you know, I, I put it right on my on my wall hmm. in, my, in my office so I can remember the urgency of what's at stake. But, you know, losing over a thousand lives a day to heroin. Uh, and we were very clear in that um, whole campaign that the solution is not more jails. Uh, the solution yeah. is treatment and housing. That This is not doesn't need to be thought of as a crime as much as as a, um, a health problem that needs needs treatment. And so. We had a number of our folks that are in in recovery from heroin that uh, spoke at the press conference and that are helping us understand what what works and what doesn't work when yeah. it comes to heroin addiction and, and other substance addiction. So, um, but that's a new piece of it, man. I mean, like yeah. it's a very different 
world when it comes to folks without housing in Philadelphia than it was uh, 25 years ago when our primary yeah. drugs were, um, you know, crack and, and much less so with, I mean, heroin's such a monster and fentanyl is yeah. just so toxic and addictive and painful to see so many lives destroyed by it. And there's dynamics where there's, it's not the people in the neighborhood that are using it. It's people right. outside that are coming, coming in. in. So there's, you know, economic dynamics there. There's yep. so much, you know, that it's a complicated ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, and it just reminds me of the, the just the reality for folks who are, you know, stuck in this sort of like vortex, you know, they, 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 it's like they fall between like the, the, the grandmother you mentioned who, you know, her, her grandkids were taken away and then she couldn't qualify because she didn't have grandkids. Um, and, you know, I met a woman one time who told me that uh, she was in the methadone program to actually try to stop using heroin. Um, and she was getting treatment every day. And um, but what happened was, is that the methadone was uh, with the in combination with her Xanax or her anti-anxiety medications was causing her to kind of nod off her sleep during the afternoon when her when her kids would come home from school. But in, an, in a sort of a horrible, ironic twist, it was actually her medication that qualified her for the apartment that she was staying in. So this was a mother who said, I want to be a mom to my kids. I want to be there for my daughter. But if I stop taking my medication or if I go to treatment and get help and like I will actually lose the subsidy that is allowing me to not be on the street and then losing my losing my kid altogether. So there's all these dynamics where, you know, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't like you, you, totally. you kind of have to pick the lesser of two evils, um, which, you know, for me is one of my soapboxes. I tell people all the time, like people don't choose to sleep outside. They choose not to sleep in shelters um, <laughs> because and there's a world of difference, right? Like nobody would totally. if would choose to, you know, turn down a private room with a private bathroom with, you know, heat, like there's very few, the majority of people who are experiencing homelessness would gladly take that up um, if they were presented it, but that's not what they're offered. They're offered a, a congregate setting, you know, with a dozen other people in the same room snoring and, you know, keep, you know, disrupting their sleep. And uh, so there's so many of these dynamics where the people have to choose one evil over another in order to survive. And I think a lot of folks don't, don't realize that when they think of homelessness and they think of the, the folks that are being impacted the most. Totally. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I, I you know, I, I kind of uh, uh, realize as you're sharing is that a lot of folks, myself included, that haven't been on public assistance or didn't grow up on it, we don't understand all of the dynamics that are at play, right? For instance, the leap between um, being on public assistance and having uh, a full-time job or a house is so huge. And in fact, people that begin to make some progress in having a more financially stable life are often penalized, right? If you yeah. save a certain amount of money off of a yep. part-time job, then you end up totally losing your public assistance. So there's a lot yep. of folks that are going... I can't provide childcare and healthcare and all of these things off of, uh, you know, a, a, a part-time job or even a full-time job or even a couple of full-time jobs yeah. if they don't have health coverage and stuff. So that's where I think we've really got to rethink our public assistance, you know, uh, and um, uh, a lot of folks that think about welfare reform or something, it's just about getting people off public assistance. And I think our goal should be financial st stability. So yeah. why wouldn't we 
incentivize people saving up money so that they can have a process of, you know, coming into more personal financial stability. But that, that I think that there's just a, there's so many, there's, there's a giant gap between public mm. assistance and financial stability. Right. And, and there's yeah. not a real clear bridge of how to get from there to you know, one to the other. Yeah. I mean, I, I know another guy who, um, who was getting his teeth done. He was working with his Medicaid was actually covering his, his, his dental work. Um, and he was, and he started, he found a really good job that was actually going to pay a, a decent living. Um, but he would have, it would have disqualified him from Medicaid. Um, because he would have started making too much money and he wouldn't qualify for Medicaid. So, but the job, while may have paid him more, wasn't offering health benefits that would have covered his teeth work. And so now he was in this position where he's like, I can either, you know, continue to live in the street, sleep in the subways and get my teeth fixed, or I can take this job and not ever have the teeth that, you know, have, have a, a smile that I can be proud of uh, for the rest of my life. Um, and again, it's those dynamics and it's, you know, it's just crazy to think about, like, I love what you said about, you know, connecting the dots between the policy and the people. Um, I remember a, uh, back in, when I first started in this work in 2011 or 2012, um, the, there was a huge, the, the financial, you know, there was a financial crisis with, um, in 2008, 2009, the, you know, the housing bubble popped and people were losing their homes and budgets were, were, were crashing in terms of city governments and, uh, Mayor Bloomberg at the time decided to slash uh, the the financial advantage program that provided rental assistance to mm. low income New Yorkers in order to save money um, on the city budget. The problem he didn't think about was that by not paying their rent subsidies, they were all going to end up homeless and then end up being moved into the shelter system. Um, and sh sheltering someone is actually vastly more expensive than housing them. Um, because of the way the shelter system is, is structured in New York City, there's actually even a right to shelter in New York where they are obligated to provide shelter. So, like the the homeless population ballooned by like thirty percent over the course of two years or something crazy, and it was because I mean I I tell people I'm like dude it could have Bloomberg could have called me I could have told him in five minutes this is a terrible idea because <laughs> you're just gonna be moving. Yeah. These people who have like I had a woman and in, in, in come up to me. She was living in her apartment in the South Bronx for 30 years, never had an issue because she had this financial su the support and she was able to put together the, the rest. And and then this Vantage program was slashed and now she's getting an eviction letter for the first time um, and getting moved into the shelter system. And then people are stuck in this sort of cyclical, you know, disaster of yeah. trying to get out, but not having a way. So like just that idea of the connecting the dots between the policy and, and, and people on the ground. Um, what are, are there some ways that you've seen like really good examples of, of that and, and sort of government officials and like reaching out to people like, you know, in, in your neighborhood or, or people with lived experience to kind of shift the narrative around these, these issues that, that, you know, we're both passionate about. There are. And I'll tell you, uh, I think these stories are important because people hear all kinds of other stories and stereotypes of the welfare queen or all the people that are just living off of public assistance and all this. And please, I think, you know, I think it's important that we not have polemics in these like, you know, I know folks that um, are in poverty and at least I would say that they are um they, they appear to be lazy. And I also know a lot of people in poverty that are the hardest working people I know. 
uh, and the most courageous people I know have survived things I cannot imagine. And, uh, and I, you know, in fact, I don't even want to call anybody lazy. I feel like a lot of the people I know just get tired, right? They get exhausted. And, and, and yet I think on the other end of the spectrum, I know a lot of rich folks that I would say are pretty lazy. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that, that, you know, that this is a, you know, exact, uh, a, a kind of category or something. Right. But I think that's why the stories that we're telling today are so important because they're real stories, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're people that we know. And I'll just tell you one more, which was a bunch of years ago, we had a fire, right? And so, um, this fire, this is important, started in one of the city-owned abandoned factories. We've got 700 abandoned factories, and it had been on fire before. It had been a, a, a place with so much chaos, and we had been trying to get the city to demolish it. So this, this fire was huge. It was as big as they get, seven-alarm fire, and it burnt down our whole block. It burnt down our community center. It burnt down the house wow. I was living in, a dozen you know, other houses. A hundred families were impacted. Uh, but I want to say this. like I'm so proud of how our neighborhood came together, right? So after the fire, the Red Cross had set up an emergency shelter because this was like a humanitarian mm-hmm. crisis. And uh, we didn't have electricity. Cars blew up because people couldn't even move them in time. I mean, it was crazy. And um, and then the Red Cross volunteers came and they said, listen, we had no one stay in the emergency shelter because everybody in your neighborhood came together and welcomed the people whose houses burnt down. Wow. One of our neighbors pet, one of our neighbors saw the homeless dogs and cats and said, all right, listen, for now, I'll just become the, the pet shelter. And she, we're like, <laughs> God bless you. You know, and she took all the cats and dogs and, um, and, and, you know, someone else started cooking for everybody. Like, and that, that wasn't surprising in a lot of ways, right? Cause community is how our neighborhood has survived. And a lot of yeah. neighborhoods that have been neglected uh, by other, you know, entities in the city, the way that they've survived is off of, of uh, depending on each other. You know, a lot of communities that are economically poor are community rich. And a lot mm-hmm. of communities that are economically poor have really lost the, the idea of like leaning on each other until there's a tragedy, you know. And so anyway, I what also happened is that those of us who lost our homes the city came with inspectors and saw the rubble, literally the burnt down houses and gave us fines and it, and a notice that said the, you know, charred remains of your house are a hazard. And so you've got like, I think it was like 10 days that we had to take care of that. <laughs> and you're like, I'm, I, I mean, and the thing is in this situation, it wasn't like my neighbor, like I'm literally have yeah. everything in my bags, you know, like yeah. trash bags. And I'm going, we don't have a bulldozer nearby, right? <laughs> and listen to this, dude. We were fined $10,000 each what? for having a public health hazard after the city-owned factory what? burned our houses down, right? So listen to this, though. To make it really uh, personal, one of my neighbors went to try to get a new house. Think, I mean, you know, I had, we had another house, another community down the block. So I was able to, I had, you know, we had resources and we tried to like acquire the abandoned properties. And many of those we did, we bought the charred remains. So it wouldn't be a liability to our neighbors. And we tried to stabilize them. We raised, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, tried to stabilize everybody. But then listen to this, my neighbor goes to try to get a new house and her credit is destroyed. 
by that fine. So she, they literally said to her, wow, you owe the city like $10,000 and she's always had good credit, you know? And, and you can see how someone can become homeless, right? Yeah. Because of absolutely nothing that they did. The, the house that they lived in for years, even for generations, just got burnt down by the city's factory and then they are fined for it. So the only way that I tell this story, because the only way that we were able to change that, to be honest, man, was by exposing it. I mean, hundreds of neighbors came together. We signed petitions. We had media come that came and began to tell this story. And so then the city came and we're like, oh, about that fine. Don't worry about (laughs) it. about, About that. If we if we hadn't had that momentum and had relationships and social capital that was able to really get some key media people in to like expose that, then my neighbor, you know, and and, and many other stories like that where they just have a fire and get fined ten thousand dollars and they're on the street, you know. I mean, yeah. and, and so I, you know, I think that's important because it's a story that shows both the possibility. Yep. What it what it takes to make change. Um, yeah. And it takes community. It takes grassroots organizing, you know, to change some of these things. And those policies, like they might look good to city officials somewhere in City Hall or something where they go, yeah, that house really is not safe. You know, it needs to be torn down. And somehow through just bureaucratic barriers or writing out fines without thinking about the consequences or like yeah. putting themselves in someone else's shoes and going, what are you going to do? Like, if your house just burnt down, like how, how are you going to take care of that? You know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, that's, and again, I've, I, so recently I had a, a, an experience where I don't know if you, you saw this, but the, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey decided to, to put together a, he sent out an, a, an email to all of the, a bunch of homeless service providers like ourselves and others, and basically saying, you are no longer allowed to give food to, to homeless people in around Penn Station and around the parks. And I know you have some experience with 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 this reality in Philly. Um, and, you know, f- f- what I, so what I, I again, now most of the people that got this email were, you know, marginalized themselves and they're they're giving out, you know, kind of whatever they can collect. And they're like, we don't have the money to afford a fine or a ticket. So they're like, we'll just we'll just have to stop, I guess, because we, we, you know, we love giving food to our neighbors and, and helping, but we just can't afford. Whereas our organization has a little more pull, a little more network. And so, you know, we were able to get the New York Times involved. Um, and all of a sudden, an article came out talking about how, the, you know, Newark was basically going to try to ban feeding programs. And um, and, and the, the narrative shifted literally from like a Tuesday to a Friday like as of Tuesday or like whatever it was the day exactly, they were banning feeding. They're going to ticket and find anyone who gives out food as of the following week, because of a New York times article, all of a sudden they're offering permits. You can apply for a permit. Uh, the permit changed from like a $100 fee to free at some point between that. So, so like the narrative just sort of shifted because, because of, like you said, sometimes shining a light on it and just saying, look, this is, this is what's happening. And so many people just, if they don't have anyone with those connections to be able to build that out, it just, it just goes through and people on the, on the margins are just kind of bullied and silenced into, into sort of being forced to accept um, in, instead of, you know, being able to uh, fight it and protest and, and actually get the, the ridiculousness sort of changed. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, those laws, you know, you, you think of history and uh, the people who have, have changed the laws have often been the folks that have uh, uh, exposed them by suffering the consequences of breaking them, you know, and the, yeah. the the beautiful holy work of civil disobedience, thankfully, is a great tradition for Christians. I mean, we've had a lot of great Christians go to jail, <laughs> you know, yeah. throughout history. Martin Luther King, you know, when he went to jail, he said, at first I was a little troubled, but then I look at history and saw what good company I have behind bars, <laughs> you know. And John Lewis, of course, called it the good trouble and said that's why we can yep. smile smile in our mug shots if they arrest us because we know that we're on the right side of history. So yeah, we yeah. we um we began to see that pattern, uh, the same thing. You know, in fact, it, it it's happened all over the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Anti homeless laws, right? I mean, yeah. there's other things too, like there's uh, um like anti-homeless architecture, right? Yep. Benches and uh, parks yep. that are designed to keep people from sleeping comfortably. But these laws that discriminate, you know, that um, Philadelphia passed laws that made it illegal to sleep in public places, um, illegal to share food. And uh, yep. and we, we, you know, broke those laws and challenged them and went to jail and got fined. And we, we ultimately ended up winning um, many times we won in court. You know, uh, at one point I had a shirt on that said, Jesus is homeless. Uh, and the judge uh, said, tell me about that. You know, and I said, well, the scripture says, you know, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And the judge said, uh, you guys might stand a chance. And, <laughs> and we, we did, you know, we, we fought that through the court. And um, it was really powerful too, because, the police came in so quickly when we were, we were having a, um, we had a worship service first, but then we, you know, brought pizzas in and we we're eating together. And that, that's what we were essentially arrested for was, well, it's breaking park hours. We were there when they said we couldn't be there in a public park and they, we couldn't eat there. So they swarmed in and arrested us. And so some of our friends who were on the street uh, had no intention of getting arrested, but they were. And so we decided we would uh, be represented by our friend Alfonso, who we all knew as Fonz because he was smooth, yeah. you know. And so he um, he stood up in court and basically said, these laws are evil and wrong. We rest mm. our case. <laughs> and uh, That's fantastic. Yeah, we, we all just said, yep, amen. And, uh, and the, the judge was really sympathetic. The judge said, listen, the, what's in question here? is not whether or not these folks broke the law. I mean, it's they they're it's very clear that they broke the law, but the question are the laws that we're passing that discriminate against some of our most vulnerable citizens. And he said, if it weren't yeah. for people who broke the bad laws, we would still have slavery. You know, uh, yeah. think, think of the, uh, uh, the underground railroad, you know, he said, even the Boston tea party. I mean, like we, we, yeah. if it weren't for people who broke the bad laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. And so he said, these are not criminals. They're freedom fighters and dropped all of our charges and we, but we've had to keep fighting just like you have, yeah. you know? And I'll, I'll, the, the interesting thing on this is that a number of times it's been the church and people of faith, uh, not just Christians, but interfaith, like people, yeah. people who are really compelled by love and compassion and often by their faith to um, resist these uh, policies. And, um, and so one of our arguments, man, you've probably used this one in court too, is that this is a part of our religious freedom. And that, mm-hmm. that often gets abused, you know, by folks that don't yeah. want to comply with federal regulations or don't want to make a cake for a same gendered couple in Colorado right. or whatever, you know. But for us, we argued that this is, you know, a fundamental 
American constitutional thing that we talk about. Yeah. And so to say that we can't feed the homeless is to say that we cannot feed Christ because that's yeah. what we believe. We're not just feeding some pitiful poor person. It's sacramental. Right. We're feeding Jesus. You know, he said, when you, when I was hungry, did you feed me? And so yeah. that was, that's been our argument and that's gone all the way to a federal level. Incidentally, folks on the border have used the same argument, right? When they've been well, arrested great. for showing hospitality to immigrants and refugees or putting water in the desert yeah. as an act of hospitality and love. They've argued, you know, <laughs> Jesus also said, when I was thirsty, did you give me something yep. to drink? So I think we can, you know, we can really use our faith um, as, as a part of that witness. Um, but we, it's, yeah, man, I'm so excited to hear that you've been challenging those laws. We get letters now from folks all over the country that, are challenging those. I saw one study that 50 different cities have passed different versions yeah. of anti-homeless laws. I think it was Phoenix that made all trash city property. And so if a person was living on the street that was going in, you know, just trying to find a, a piece of yeah. cardboard or food yeah. or something in the trash, I mean, they could actually charge them with be, theft. They could actually be, uh, yeah, charged with theft. And in Atlanta for a while, they were charging pe people. They were waiting till people use the restroom because obviously you got to go to the bathroom at some point. Yeah. And they would get them when they're, you know, in an alley or, you know, off in a remote pl place in the park trying to just, you know, uh, go to the bathroom. And they were, there were cases where they were charged with sex crimes, with public indecency what? that could land oh people on the sex offenders list just because they couldn't find a restroom. So that's messed up. But you don't think it's of that so messed unless up. you know yeah. people that are there. Right. And so that, yep. you know, in Atlanta, they had a campaign, which was awesome, dude. It was called uh, P for free with dignity. And it was a campaign, <laughs> you know, to have porta potties in public restrooms. I mean, that's not yeah. the end, that's not the end goal, but the immediate no, but goal is to keep people from getting arrested and charged with a sex crime for taking a whiz, you know? So they It's, it's harm yeah. reduction is what it is. Yeah. I mean, totally. yeah. it's what you're trying I mean, it's in New York City that there's no bathrooms anywhere. I mean, I know tourists who, you know, the the one of the I'm I'm working on a on a book that I'm going to be publishing pretty soon to try to help people get uh, kind of have tools to know how to respond to your homeless neighbors. And one of the things I, I end one of the chapters by saying that, you know, if a person who's peeing outside or, or, or holding that, you know, Heineken can, um, what has a place to live, he's not a homeless guy. He's just another Rangers fan, you know, but, but, if, <laughs> but if it's a homeless guy, all of a sudden you have this like yep. police involved and like all this stuff. And it's like, well, we, we discriminate against people who have and have not based on what, you know, what they have access to. Um, and I, man, I mean, you, I'm sure you and I could talk for hours on this. Um, I just have two, two questions I want to kind of wrap up with. I'd love your input on one is kind of a personal one. I, I've been doing this 11 years. Um, I know, again, I started after your book came out, because like I said, your book was one of the things that kind of like gave me that little kick to kind of start moving in this direction. Um, and so you've been doing it longer. That's my point. Um, and you've also been taking on some of the most devastating and, and, and painful, you know, realities that our culture has right now. I know with, I, I've been following your social media and, you know, like with your fight against the death penalty and, and the losses that we have recently happened um, as a result of, you know, people with disabilities and, and being, being executed. And I mean, I, so my personal question I want to ask is how do you keep going? Like, how do you, how do you manage to continue? Like, is there some, what is, what is something that you do or that you've, 
I learned that you can share with people like me, maybe a little bit farther behind or coming up behind you, or maybe someone who's a college student right now or a high school student who's just just getting in the game and just trying to activate their their you know their, their actions and their and their words to line up with their faith or with their 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 passion. How, how do you how do you sustain? How do you keep going? Mm. Oh, dude, I I I um I'm so grateful for to connect and to hear more about your own story and just honored to be a little piece of it. And I can't wait to be giving your book out to everybody too. So, uh, but you know, I, I mean, I just think of last night, you know, we, we had two executions yesterday and, um, I, I've, I'm a part of a big coalition called death penalty action. That's been hosting vigils both on the ground in person and also hybrid, you know, online. And, um, man, last night during that vigil, we were on the phone with Matthew Reeves. One of the, the one of his friends was on uh, the live Zoom Facebook call with him when we heard the announcement that uh, his execution would happen, despite his intellectual disabilities. And uh, real, I mean, every expert that's been with him knows that he functioned at a fourth fourth grade level and didn't qualify for. Um, uh, execution, you know, um, by even by our constitution, not only was it unconstitutional, but it was just sickening, you know, but I'll tell you what, what, how we get through that is by not feeling like you're alone, you know, Mm. and by, by, I mean, everybody, including Matthew, I mean, literally one of the last things that he was hearing before he was executed last night was people that love him and people that are Mm -hmm. praying for him people that are singing songs of hope and redemption, you know, and speaking life into his death chamber. Uh, And so, you know, literally there's that place that says we're to bear each other's burdens. So I think we're carrying that together. One of my friends said, you know, even Jesus didn't carry the cross by himself. Like, you know, Mm. talking about how someone else, um, you know, literally helped carry the cross uh, as he was being executed. Um, so, um, you know, aside from all the cliche, but true answers of, you know, self-care and, you know, I, I try to uh, exercise and, and literally like do physical things like beating, you know, blacksmithing and beating guns into plows are not just beautiful, but they're like therapy for me, you know, but I, I do a lot of things to try to keep my joy and hope alive. You know, I spend time with people who their faith is robust. And I think even, you know, the, the intergenerational piece of this is so important on the call last night. I think it was a 16 year old high school student that is an organizer that was on with, you know, Magdaleno who organized with Cesar Chavez and he's, he must be, you know, 80 years old now. And um, so I think we need those, that cloud of witnesses that crosses the generations, you know, um, and, uh, and and the people who have survived so much, you know, on, on our call last night were murder victims, family members, mm. folks that their family members that uh, their their loved ones have been executed, you know. And so it, it, it's really a community of, of folks together, whether it's, you know, the, the movement against gun violence or the death penalty or, you know, to, to challenge homelessness and, and how, you know, those, those who need housing. Like we, we got to do it together, man. And mm-hmm. um and we've got to we we've got to take some courage from the fact that the whole story of Jesus is about a God who is in solidarity with those who are hurting, um, mm. whether it's homelessness, refugees, 
um, people with brown skin or darker skin, like like Jesus was a brown skinned Palestinian Jewish refugee who died on a cross. <laughs> like yeah. every every part of his life was about a God who is not just confined to the comfort of heaven, but mm-hmm. is entering into the struggle here on earth, even to the point of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, I mean, yeah. think about that for a minute, y'all, right? Like, yeah, even God felt the absence of God. Jesus felt yeah. the absence of God and that long loneliness uh, in that moment. And so we can, we can, if that's where we're at, you know, um, we're not alone. Uh, and, and so we really do need each other. And so that, that's why conversations like this are so important, man. It's so important to do it in community. So, so one last question, and it doesn't have to be a long answer if you don't want to be, but like, what is one, what are, what are some practical ways that people listening can, that you've seen that's been really powerful in helping homeless po- folks? So like you walk down the street, you see someone on the sidewalk, you see that guy panhandling the cardboard sign, the person under the freeway, or that, that mother or with the, you know, with the, with the children who's, you know, being kicked out of the church. But what are some simple things that every, every, every person can do regardless of their experience or their their, you know, their professionalism or their expertise, what can we all, what can, what's something we can all do to help that, that person and, and acknowledge them? Wow. Well, I, I really believe fundamentally, I mean, we're made to love and be loved, you know, um, and yet we, we protect ourselves, you know, I mean, it's hard to make yourself vulnerable to everybody in every moment. And, um, and so I think there's a there's a dance there. There's a delicate uh, thing of you know what does it look like to be present with someone, and um, I, I really think part of our problem is is a relational disconnect and a, a geographical proximity problem. Not not so much a compassion problem or a lack of love, but sometimes it's a lack of proximity and not being near to those who are hurting. It's not that you know folks that that have in money don't love poor people. It's that they often don't know many. And so I think the beginning is a relationship, you know, and, mm. and is just being present. And maybe it's someone that, you know, we pass on our way to work every day and just carving out time to, to hear their story and realizing, I think the temptation is to kind of um, box people in, right. That this is, this is why someone's homeless. And I think there are so many different reasons that someone ends up not having housing, almost as many reasons as people have for ending up with yeah. housing, you know, they, um, and our stories are all different. You know, people that have houses can still be, have a lot of pain, be addicted to stuff, mm-hmm. be victims of domestic violence. People on the street can actually be pretty healthy, but in a really mm-hmm. difficult situation that they don't know how to get out of. And so I think we got to be careful to be nuanced and to be, um, to, to, uh, you know, allow the spirit to move. But the beginning is by being present. You know, that's why that mm. mother Teresa's line is so important to me that we're not called to do great things, but small things with great love. And what's important isn't how much we do, but how much love we put into doing it. So I might just leave us with those words to say that, you know, whenever we encounter someone on the streets, what's important might not just be what we do, but how much love we put into doing it. It might just be, you know, grabbing a lunch and and taking a few minutes to have it together. I know people that travel with socks and with gloves so that they can give them out. But if you don't, if you just hand them off without having an yep. encounter, I think, you know, 
giving money can be a way to insulate ourselves from a relationship. You just drop five bucks so you don't have to have an interaction. So it's le less about like what we do and more about how much love we put into doing it. So it's try to be present with those who we meet, whether they have houses or whether they don't. Amazing. Dude, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Such an honor, man. Uh, hopefully we can do it again. Cause again, there's so many things I just want to riff off of for the, <laughs> for the next hour. So thank you so much, Shane. Thank you so much for being on this podcast, man. Yeah. You too, buddy. Let's do it again soon. Grateful for you. Keep in touch. I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the neighbors with no doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called neighbors with no doors. And I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodoors.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.